Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. One other announcement that leads into uh, the, the message this morning is that uh, our congregational meeting, our annual congregational meeting is coming up on uh, June 23rd, a couple Sundays from now. And it'll be after, immediately after this service, we will review the performance of our church and our school this last year, approve budgets for both. We will elect those who've been nominated to serve as elders on our council and thank those who've served um, who have completed their term of service, and then we always end it, and so it's another time for us to come together as generations with a barbecue, great barbecue afterwards, to just to celebrate how God's at work and continues to work here at Grace. So I want you to mark that date if you're with it here on the 23rd to stay for that congregational meeting and then for the uh, barbecue afterwards. It's kind of a potluck. Everybody brings something. We've got the meat, but everybody else kind of brings the rest of the, uh, the fixings, and it's just a, it's a great time. And the reason why I bring this up is that it's been my practice right before the annual congregational meeting to preach a sermon around this time of year, what I call the state of grace. Uh, I, I consider this particular message an opportunity for us to look back on where we've been this past year as well as to clarify the direction in which I believe the Lord is leading us as a community. And my focus for doing that this morning is a very familiar text, which you heard Lee read. Uh, it's one of those well-worn passages of Scripture that speaks to us again and again because Jesus offers us the promise of rest. You know, in times like ours, where in the midst of our daily lives, we continue to find ourselves wearied and burdened by all kinds of stresses, responsibilities, relationships, words like these, just three verses, they catch our attention. I mean, it's words like these that we quote when we want to share the gospel. You know, I mean, when we want to introduce and encourage our friends and neighbors to follow Jesus, these are the kind of words that we point to. Because after all, isn't this a scriptural snapshot of what the good news is all about? An easier burden, a lighter load, escaping the rat race, experiencing lasting peace, being set free from the crushing demands of this world. You know, you could say that these three verses are the hakuna matata of the Bible. Some of you are getting that reference. A life given to Christ means no worries for the rest of your days. That's what we say. That's what we believe. That's what we just sang together. That's how we present Christianity. And yet, is it just me, or does anyone else notice that the average Christian, the typical self-designated follower of Jesus, is often the most exhausted and overwhelmed person in the room? As a pastor, and I've shared this before, more and more Christians secretly, and it is secretly, you know, privately confess to me that they're worn out trying to live the Christian life. We try to do the right thing by God and our neighbor, just like Jesus told us to. We try to serve others and help those in need, striving to produce good fruit in keeping with repentance, 
just like Jesus taught us. We try to keep living up to the standards of Jesus, but honestly, it's just not happening. We have our ups and our downs. We have our good days and we have our bad days. But there's no consistency. When we fail, we, we pick ourselves up and we promise to try harder, only to fail again and again and again. Feeling like we aren't getting anywhere, eventually most of us just quit trying. So what's going on here? If Jesus promises us rest, a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light, why are we so drained, so maxed out? Did we misunderstand Jesus? Maybe he was talking about our life after death. After we leave this world, once we get to heaven, that's when things change. That's when we rest. And in the meantime, is life on this side of eternity supposed to be in a, a series of mountain highs and valley lows where we just hold on to that ticket of, to paradise, Jesus' promise of salvation, until one day he just takes us away from it all? Functionally, this is how many of us live the Christian life. If you strip down the message of salvation to a single sentence, if we were to do that, it kind of comes out like this. If, what's it all about? We would often, uh, most of us would say, the message of salvation in one sentence is this. Jesus died and rose again so that you and I could have eternal life. That's the payoff. That's the incentive. That's the gift. Eternal life. But what is it? What is it? What is eternal life? What is Jesus offering us here? And what I've tried to suggest over this last year, what I'm presenting to you this morning, is if we read the scriptures closely, if we really pay attention to what Jesus is saying, eternal life is not about quantity as much as it is about quality. In other words, Jesus didn't come to sell us life insurance. As if he comes into our lives and says, don't worry, your life stinks right now, but with me you have forever, and forever is a long time, so eventually it'll get better. That's not the kind of life we're looking for. That's not the kind of life that Jesus is offering us. Jesus is not offering us the kind of life that we have to believe it exists and then wait to pass through some portal between death and heaven to experience Eternal life isn't some generic fountain of youth that we're all chasing together. Eternal life isn't an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's not an endless shopping spree. And it's not a never-ending carnival ride. Eternal life isn't so much a destination as it is an orientation. What Jesus is pointing us to is something right in front of us, right here, right now. Eternal life is life with God our Father. It's experiencing the kind of life that Jesus has, that Jesus talks about all the time. Last week, that's why it was so important if you were here that Denise preached on the Trinity, that we understand the Trinity. The Trinity cannot just be something that we go, well, I don't understand what it means, but I guess I gotta believe it because I'm a Christian. We need to understand that it was so powerful, the visual image that she gave us, that if our understanding of the Trinity is just this assembly line with God, God the Father here, Jesus the Son here, Holy Spirit, move on down the line. 
We're missing something incredible. We're missing the key to understanding Jesus' offer to eternal life. And that's why the picture that she gave us in contrast is getting at the heart of it. And we understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is interlocked, interdependent upon each other, not needing us. And then our entry into that is coming into that to where we're in the center, surrounded. That's what Jesus is offering us. Not a lot, an assembly line but to participate in life with the Father, with Him and with the Spirit, the way that they experience it. This is the highest quality of life. It's a life brimming with confidence and security. A life where you're no longer wondering all the time where you stand, or if the floor is going to drop out from under you. You are surrounded with this confidence and security of love and of grace. Eternal life is a life filled with purpose and with peace. You're not trying to figure out your purpose. You're not secretly wondering, is it an accident? Am I here by accident? You're not creating your own purpose. You understand you have a destiny, that a path has been laid before you. And peace comes from knowing that you don't have to figure it out or make it up as you go. Eternal life is a life bursting with expectation because your life is a life of discovery of what God has laid before you. It's a life of an ever-expanding capacity for joy and for love because it, you just keep growing in your awareness of this God and of his, his, how he works and how he's working in and through you. And you find this increasing capacity for you to not only know it, but to express it, to love the way that God loves Eternal life is the kind of life that money can't buy. And yet, ironically, it's the kind of life that Jesus tells us boasts treasure that moths can't spoil. Eternal life is the kind of life that boasts treasure that rust will not decay. Eternal life boasts the kind of treasure that thieves will not be able to steal. I honestly don't know anyone who wouldn't want that kind of life. Do you? Do you know anyone who would go, you know, I think I'll pass. So why is it so elusive for us? Why, as Christians, are we missing it? And the answer is this kind of life, eternal life, can only be found in Christ. In Christ. That's key. Come to me, Jesus says. And we all shake our heads and shout, amen. But what does eternal life in Christ mean? Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me and find rest by taking my yoke upon you. Beloved, what Jesus is telling us is that eternal life in Christ means we can only experience this kind of life, the highest quality of life, when we live in dependence upon Jesus. We have to submit and surrender all the other designs we have for living. All the other ways that the world tells us life's supposed to work. We have to surrender and submit all of those to Jesus. Even the ones we create for ourselves. We have to let our lives instead be shaped by Jesus. Notice that the kind of life that Jesus invites us into. Notice with what he says here. The kind of life that Jesus invites us into eternal life is not some sort of empty or boring existence. You know what gets in my craw is even when we divide this life from the next, we have this tendency to make heaven really boring. You know, we make heaven sound like not very appealing. I mean, the best we can come up with is, well, you're walking on these streets paved to gold. It's gold. Or we're on a cloud playing a harp. And Jesus gives us way more to envision Life, not just later, but now. Eternal life, as Jesus describes it, is not this empty or boring existence. It's not simply sitting on a cloud later or getting on our knees in a pew now. 
The biblical idea of eternal life is a life full, a life that is filled with things. And that's why, and I've said this before, when we talk about eternal life, if we truly understand it, you can't mention eternal life and retirement in the same sentence. Many of us live this model of life that, you know what, our best days are when we're young and we work really, really hard to get, come into our own as an adult to have our prime time, and then we gradually are on this slope to decay. And our only hope is that we get to retire. That's not living. That's not eternal life. That's a life waiting for death. Eternal life is not that kind of life. Eternal life has nothing to do with retirement. Eternal life is a life filled with responsibilities and relationships. It's a life where we still make investments, where there we still have commitments. Now, for some of us, in hearing that, we may go, well, I'm not sure if I want that kind of eternal life because that's why I want to retire. I don't want responsibility. I don't want to have relationships. I don't want to have to make commitments. I don't want to have to make investments. Late-breaking news flash, the only way that happens is if you stop breathing. Because even if you retire, you're still going to be involved in things. You're still going to have relationships, responsibilities, investments, and commitments. <laughs> Eternal life with Christ is not divorced from those things. Eternal life, Jesus puts it out there, is not yoke-free. Eternal life is in Christ. And here's the difference. Here's what helps us to understand this. Eternal life is about wearing the right yoke. Eternal life in Christ is not about the responsibilities we've committed to because we're unable to say no. Eternal life is not about the relationships that we're invested in just because we want to please people or because we're addicted to codependence. If that's life for you, if those are your responsibilities and your relationships, yes, you want to retire from that. Experiencing eternal life in Christ is about instead letting all of our relationships, all of our responsibilities, all of our commitments, all of our investments be defined by the ones that Jesus calls us to. And Jesus assures us that all of those relationships, all of those responsibilities, all of those investments, all of those commitments that he calls us to that kind of life, eternal life in him, is a yoke that is easy. That word easy is also really important because we use easy as meaning problem-free. But that's not what Jesus means here. Jesus is not saying that our lives, eternal lives, are problem-free. Because here's the thing, I don't care where you are, relationships are always complicated. Responsibilities always involve some level of challenge. Easy as it is used by Jesus here means something very, very significant. Easy means that the yoke of Jesus, the yoke that Jesus puts upon us, is tailor-made for each one of us. The relationships and responsibilities, the commitments and investments that Jesus calls us to are custom fit for you and me. What Jesus calls us to, when we live in dependence upon Christ, grace is given to us so that our burdens are light and manageable. We can carry them. More than that, what we find is all of those things are transformative for us. They're fulfilling. Life is full. 
The kind of life that we live apart from Christ, that life that starts when you're young and works up to your prime and then you go out to pasture, that kind of life is about burdens and responsibilities that we put ourselves, others put upon us, and that kind of life is not fulfilling and not transformative. That kind of life is nullifying and ultimately defeating. Because just when you're getting somewhere, everyone tells you you're done. And Jesus says, and it's not meant to intimidate, it's meant to inspire, you're never done. It's eternal life. And that's why Jesus doesn't just say, take my yoke upon you. He says, and learn from me. What Jesus offers us with this eternal life in him, he's inviting us into a new way to live. No, that's not right. Don't write that down if you're writing anything down. Jesus is not inviting us into a new way to live. You see, this is part of the problem. Jesus is inviting us into the only way to live. Because any life that is not eternal, stay with me on this, any life that is not eternal, any life that is not with God, is not life at all. It's death. We live in this idea that, you know what, there's two roads that diverge in a wood. There's only one way, there's only one life, and it's life with God, apart from God. Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let that sink in. Apart from Jesus, you and I can do nothing. Paul will amplify it and say, yeah, you can live and gather all kinds of stuff and have all these things that you are, but when you come before your maker, when you stand before Jesus, Jesus will test all of those things. And all of those things that have nothing to do with him will burn away will disappear, they will not last, which ultimately means they were never there. They were shadows. They were illusions. Life is a gift of grace from beginning to new beginning, but never ending. Eternal life is a spirit-initiated and a spirit-driven enterprise. But Jesus makes it clear. Hear this. Make no mistake. Eternal life is not a passive process. Jesus invites us to learn from him. Jesus calls us to follow him. And he offers to teach us, in other words, how to live eternally now. We're not waiting for a different life. We're learning how to live that eternal life now. This passage, the entirety of the gospel, in other words, is about discipleship. Not just believing in Jesus, but following him, learning from him. And that is a theme that I've tried to take us on through this last year. And I want to draw this out for you to so you understand where we've been and where we're going. And I want, to, I want to try to frame this process of discipleship as it's given to us in Scripture as I see it by way of an analogy. And through the use of this analogy, I hope to also shed light on where we've been going as a community and where you can be a part of where we're headed. So to think about this process of discipleship, of learning from Jesus, of being in Christ, think about the analogy of learning a foreign language. Say like Japanese. For that idea, let's say you just think, you know, I think I might want to learn Japanese. For that idea to become a reality, it begins with a vision. It begins with a vision. You have to start to imagine what it would be like to speak Japanese. You have to start to imagine how your life would change by knowing how to speak in Japanese. 
What difference would that make? What would that, how would that change your, your circumstances, the opportunities before you? And in the process, if you, you also get this sense in terms of vision of thinking about what's involved in learning Japanese. You start to envision the time. You envision the energy and the money involved to do so. And here's the thing. If the vision isn't positive, if the desire and, learn, and value of learning Japanese doesn't make the cost of learning Japanese seem like a bargain, the vision ends there. You will not invest in doing so. You know why most of us in the United States are not really good at learning languages? Because we speak the language that everybody else wants to know. You go to other countries, think about how motivated in other countries people are to learn English. They have no problem capturing the vision of why learning English is a good idea and what it will open for them. But for us, it's like French. Why do I need French? Japanese, who cares? When you have a vision, that's the beginning of something. That's the beginning of a process. For me, Sunday is all about casting the vision of learning the language of discipleship. During this last year, I've tried to introduce all of us to the syntax and grammar of discipleship by reframing our reading of the Bible through two twin themes of covenant and kingdom. I've talked about covenant as the idea of understanding God's essential promise to us, how that informs our identity and how we're invited to understand ourselves, each other through that promise. But I've also talked about kingdom, how the Bible has the, this, uh, the other side of that is out of our identity, out of that promise, out of that invitation, we have the challenge of living out the responsibility of representing our father and his kingdom to each other and to the world. This last year, through these twin themes, we have reconsidered our understanding of God's providence and calling. Do you remember when we were in Haggai? Do you remember, Esther, how we realized that God is still calling us, that God speaks to us now? Do you remember, Esther, there are divine appointments in our lives. God is at work in the midst of the real decisions that we make. Our Father leads us and is at work in the midst of our own and re real and consequential decision and actions. The key is not to be divorced from what God is doing, but to realize how to stay in step to follow where God is leading and how God is calling us. We explored together just these, over the, the last two months what our life together as the body of Christ is supposed to look like so that we can grow and mature in our relationship to God and to our neighbor so that we can live out the great commandment and fulfill the great commission. We've looked at this understanding of we don't segment, but we're interdependent upon each other, that we have a primary role, and yet there are other roles in which God grows us into to come into this life that God has for us. And in this next year, I hope to continue to creatively articulate the invitation and challenge of the call to follow Jesus. Sunday for me is about vision, spurring you on to not just believe in Jesus, but to follow him. That's step one. Back to the foreign language. The idea of having a vision to learn a foreign language has to lead, should lead. If the vision is still real, if it's active, the vision of learning a foreign language leads to the intention of actually doing so. You involve yourself in the vision. So that, that means first you actually make a decision to learn Japanese. How many of you have ever had an, a, a, something in your mind, you're like, yeah, that might be a good idea. Yeah, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe. Living into the vision is saying, you know what, I've decided I'm going to do this. And then that decision becomes alive by taking action to prioritize that decision in terms of your resources. You look at your calendar. 
You make room on your calendar. You open up your wallet and you say, how much am I willing to spend on this? Your level of priority in learning Japanese is reflected through the accountability that you put in place. How will you measure and evaluate your progress so that you actually learn how to speak Japanese? I mean, think for a second. Imagine someone, you were a friend of someone who said, you know, I've, I've decided I really want to learn Japanese. And you're like, really? Wow, that's awesome. How are you doing that? Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just decided I want to. And so I just, and I like sushi. So I've just kind of been hanging out in sushi bars, you know, and there's this Japanese marketplace and I go there every so often, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking it's going to happen. You know, it's going to happen. Just, I'm waiting for it to happen. I'm just going to start speaking Japanese. Imagine that person wanting to learn Japanese. They tell you that's the decision they made, but they're just waiting and wondering for it to happen by accident or osmosis. And maybe along the way they pick up bits and pieces, but they're not learning how to speak Japanese. Beloved, in casting vision on Sunday, I've also tried to prompt you, and I will continue to do so as long as I'm your pastor. I cast vision, but I continue to prompt us to respond to Jesus' call to discipleship. And this last year, I have pulled no punches, and I know that for some of you, it's raised the hairs on the back of your neck. I've pulled no punches in suggesting that biblically, there is no salvation. There is no eternal life without discipleship. Now, as we've discussed this year, the immediate pushback on that statement has been twofold. And both arguments are so hardwired in us. We kick back on, the, on this idea that there's no salvation without discipleship. We're so hardwired against that that it's important that we once again call out these two pushbacks and debunk them repeatedly. So the first is the minute I say, you know what, there is no salvation, no eternal life without discipleship, the immediate pushback is, hey, we're saved by grace, not by works. I learned a long time ago, I learned in Sunday school, it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus does. Amen. But the counter to that is simple and significant. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace doesn't mean we don't take action, we don't do something. Grace is opposed to earning something. Grace is not opposed to action. Grace is opposed to attitude, the attitude behind what we do. Do we hear that? In other words, if grace is a gift, if thanks to Jesus our lives are full of grace, then the fullness of grace in our lives is meant to be exercised, expressed, exuded. God doesn't just give us something so we can hold on to it and boast about it. He gives it to us to empower us, to share it. If God gives us authority and power, he intends for us to use it, to live by it, not just to talk about it or make it into some kind of mental proposition. Guys, we can know all the right answers about the Bible. We can believe a ton of stuff about Jesus, but if our beliefs don't translate into actual decisions and real actions that shape our lives, then there is a disconnect. There is a hypocrisy in our lives. We're not being honest about our beliefs. If you believe an answer is right, you act according to that answer, don't you? Because you believe it's right. Otherwise, you don't really believe it's the right answer. If you believe in someone, if you say, I believe in you, you're a part of my life, I'm dependent upon you, you place your trust in them. You allow them to influence you. Right? We all go to the doctor. I can speak from personal experience. 
Some of us even have a personal physician. Imagine I go into the doctor in agonizing pain. I can barely walk and breathe. That was my circumstance. And the doctor comes in, trained in this, does all kinds of tests, checks me out and says, let me tell you something, you need to have your gallbladder out. And I go, oh, really? And he goes, yeah, you need to have it out. You're going to continue to have pain. You may even have an episode. We need to get you scheduled for surgery right away. And I show up the next Sunday at church, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, oh. And how's your gallbladder? Oh, it's terrible. Well, what did the doctor say? The doctor said I need to have it out immediately, or I'm going to have continual pain, and I might even have an episode. So when's your surgery? Oh, I'm not having surgery. <laughs> I'm not having surgery. Really? Oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to bear it out, man. I think I can handle this on my own. And then we go out afterwards and we go to In-N-Out and I grab a double-double. And you're like, is the doctor okay with that? Oh, no, the doctor said I need to stay away from fat. So what are you doing? Oh, I can handle it. I can handle it. And after that double-double, I like get in my car and I zoom home because I have to have a trip to the bathroom. Guys, we all have doctors, Right? If a doctor gives you a prescription and you don't follow his or her advice, does that make sense? And if you tried to tell me what a great doctor that person was, he or she was, hey, you got to go to my doctor, and I know you didn't follow their advice, why would I believe you? Why would I go to your doctor? Catching the vision of discipleship means making the decision to actually follow Jesus in learning how to live eternally. And that decision needs to be supported by the action of getting involved. And getting involved means prioritizing being a part of Jesus' body. And that's reflected through the accountability of your resources. Here comes the part that everyone doesn't want to hear. It's reflected by the accountability of your resources, your calendar and your wallet. If you're called here to grace, get involved. Get involved. Help out on Sunday. We have put this in the bulletin the last few weeks. Many of you have filled it out. Some of you have not filled it out at all. And I'm saying to you, if you're called here, be a part, get involved in what's going on. And for some of you who checked off the box and then when someone actually contacted you, were like, oh, I don't really want to do that. What? This, simply giving. We need you to give here. We need you to give here. I, I would, would love to not say this, but if you're called here, we need you to give in order to, to do the work that God's called us to do. This is a way that you can give if it's hard for you to remember. But if you're here, you have to get involved. Now, you're right now thinking I'm saying all this for the benefit of grace. <laughs> and grace does benefit, but you're missing it. What I'm saying to you is if you're actually deciding to follow Jesus, you need the accountability of getting involved. Because getting involved is the bridge from the vision to follow Jesus to the means of actually doing so. Hear me, getting involved isn't following Jesus. Helping out as an usher, helping with the coffee, passing out a bulletin, I've joked around about this. That's not discipleship. That's not following Jesus. Participating in the community, if this is where you're called, I keep saying that, if you're not called here, don't listen to me. But if God's called you here, participating in the community is getting involved in Grace's vision of discipleship. It's getting involved in the vision. It's moving from being a spectator to a participant in the vision. It's getting invested in what God is doing here. It's about not being anonymous anymore. And some of you are very, very good at being anonymous. It's opening yourself up to the accountability of learning the language of discipleship. Connecting to the church, let alone growing in the Christian life, doesn't happen by osmosis or accident. Remember the sushi bar? Remember the marketplace? If you're just kind of showing up every so often on Sunday, 
thinking that you're going to grow in your relationship with Christ, thinking that you're going to experience this eternal life, this salvation that Christ invites us to, it's not going to happen. Yet many of us as Christians act that way. I want you to hear me clearly, and I've said this before, but I have to, I'm repeating it. All of anyone is welcome here on Sunday. I consider Sunday, I framed it like family dinner. Anyone's welcome here on Sunday. Everyone is welcome. And if you come on Sunday, whether you come, whenever you come, you'll learn stuff. You will learn stuff if you come on Sunday. You will get knowledge. You will have an experience if you come on Sunday. But you won't go beyond the vision. I need you to hear that. You won't go beyond the vision of discipleship. You won't go beyond the vision if you just remain a spectator. We read the Gospels and we hear a lot about lots of crowds that heard and followed Jesus. They were spectators. The disciples were the ones who followed, who got involved. And you find beyond the original 12, people on the sidelines who got involved. Mary and Martha and others who got involved. If you have the vision to learn Japanese, and then you demonstrate the intent to learn Japanese, that then means... It leads you to exercise the means of learning Japanese. Okay, we've moved from the vision to actually moving forward the intent now to the means of learning the language. And that's probably obvious to you. You engage courses. You get books, audio files. You associate with people who speak Japanese, who are learning and practicing Japanese that you can converse with. You immerse yourself in within the culture of Japan. You practice, practice, practice thoughtful and persistent practice. And if you've, you train, and if you've ever tried to truly learn a language, can I get an amen? It's awkward, right? It's awkward. You embarrass yourself. It's wooden when you try to speak and understand it. It's embarrassing. And, but if you've ever gone to completion learning a language, you know what I'm talking about? Until that one day where you understand the language without having to stop and process. You start thinking and dreaming in Japanese. You start thinking and dreaming in Japanese. You've internalized the language. We cast the vision of discipleship, and that vision leads to the intention of being a disciple of Jesus, but the final ingredient is actually seeking the means to follow him. The basic means of discipleship can be packaged differently, and it's packaged differently throughout the church, but the essentials have remained the same for centuries. The means of discipleship are three. You have to be in the Word. You have to meditate on the Word of God, the Bible. You have to be on your knees in prayer, in solitude, getting away, conversing and listening, getting some alone time with your Creator with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number two, prayer. And number three, you have to be a regular part of Christian community. Part of the encouragement, part of the accountability, part of the messiness, part of the service of the body of Christ, the church. It's a three-in-one. It's a three-in-one. It's not a one out of two or one at a time for a season. It's through the engagement of all three of these things, scripture, prayer, and community in tandem, that Jesus draws us closer and puts his yoke on us. Notice what I didn't say there. We don't try to put on the yoke of Jesus on ourselves. Jesus places his yoke on us. Really important you hear that. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. 
bow your head and take my yoke upon you. I mentioned before there are two pushbacks to this call of discipleship. We talked about the first one. Here's the second one. The second one is this, and this is, this is rampant. I can't tell you how many Christians say this to me, not just at Grace, anywhere I go. This is like the new mantra. It, it's like the stumbling block in the church. And this is how it goes. You know, I believe in Jesus. I do. I do. But I can't follow Jesus. I can't read the Bible. I can't pray. I can't be a part of the church until I get it. Until I understand how it works. Until I feel the need for it. Until I develop the hunger for it. You see, I'm just not there yet, so I need to get it. Here's a crucial thing about discipleship. You don't follow once you get it. You follow in order to get it. You don't have to fully understand you don't have to fully see the need. You don't have to have the full taste for eternal life in order to follow Jesus. Because here's the thing, and this, is, this, is, this will help you if you, know, you all of a sudden are offended by this. Here's what's so crucial that we're missing. We can't perceive the need and we can't achieve it on our own. The work of discipleship is not an external thing. It's this inner process. It's this deeply penetrating work that Jesus does in our lives. And we are a part of a broken world. We come before God with tainted souls. We are victims. Embrace this. This is another way of talking about sin. We are victims of habitual thinking, social practices, and corrupted feelings that we aren't even consciously aware of. The first disciples didn't get it until they followed Jesus. You read the Gospels again. We're going to do that later on this year. You're going to see. You tell me when they got it. They're not getting it at all. But they just keep following because it's in following that you get it. Our covenant identity, our appreciation for our kingdom responsibility, our hunger from eternal life comes, in other words, from being with Jesus, from learning how to walk with him. Another way of saying this is that discipleship is about training with Jesus, not trying for Jesus. Please hear that. Because many of us, like I said at the beginning, are trying for Jesus. Discipleship is not trying for Jesus. Discipleship is training with Jesus. In other words, we don't read the Bible. We don't pray. We're not part of a church in order to try and follow Jesus more. We don't try these things out and then pick and choose what works for us so then we can be motivated to follow Jesus. And that is how many of us orient ourselves. We don't try them out and then decide whether they're working or not. You know, I tried this Bible reading thing, but it's just not working for me. I tried that prayer thing, but I'm not really good at it. I came to church, but church is not my thing, so I just kind of do my Christian thing on my own. No, we don't try these things out and then decide whether they're working or not. We engage these practices, and that's why they're timeless. For centuries in the church, they haven't changed. We engage these practices as an act of submission because they are the shape of the yoke. They are the means of placing our trust in Jesus. When people tell me they're not growing, they don't hear from God, they're not close to Jesus, they haven't experienced transformation, I go back to the word, I go back to prayer, and I go back to service. And generally, it's an 0 for 3, or it's a 1 for 3, or it's a 2 for 3. And when I come back and say, these are the means, this is how, it's all, oh, but I'm just not getting anything. I don't get it. It's not about that. 
It's the vehicle. It's the means. It's the, the, the basis for training. It's how we submit ourselves, not to try, but to train. We train, we apply ourselves to these practices, trusting, waiting, that know, believing that through grace, we will become, become the kind of person who instinctively follows Jesus. If you're trying for Jesus, you're doing these things out of guilt, shame, and fear. And that is why you perpetually feel like you fail. And that is why you throw up your hands and you say, this is just so much work, I cannot do this. But if you submit yourself to these things, not stressing out because you don't get it, not hemming and hawing because, you know, you know if, again, assuming you've embraced the vision and this is your intent, what will happen as you practice, 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 as you train with Jesus, follow Jesus, yield to Jesus, is all of a sudden you'll wake up one day and you'll instinctively live like Jesus, experience eternal life, not because you're trying, but because all of a sudden it innately comes out of you. Just like Japanese, all of a sudden you'll start dreaming and thinking in the way of the kingdom. That's the goal. Eternal life is Jesus doesn't just want us to obey out of guilt, shame, and fear. Hey, I saved you. Here's grace. Man, could you please make a little effort? Jesus wants to actually impart to us where our obedience, our dependency comes out of this this. This, and it makes no sense to us if you haven't experienced it yet. It's like just thinking or dreaming in Japanese. He wants our obedience, our dependence to come out of this idea that anything else just wouldn't make sense. Why would I do anything else? Why would I live any other way? No matter how the traditions and practices of the Christian faith change, these three essentials of being in the word, being in prayer, and serving together to not, do not. And there are lots of ways of engaging those means of discipleship here at Grace. Lots of opportunities to train to thoughtfully and persistently practice walking with Jesus. We have small groups. We don't have a huge small group, but we, we, can, we form small groups. We have a Grace Diners and a Grace Family Diners now where you can connect and just engage in that space of prayer, being in the Word, and again, being in community together. Here's the thing about small groups. It's the, the problem is, is that small groups have become clubs. If small groups aren't focused on being in the Word, being in prayer, and actually getting real about Jesus, then small groups really don't make any difference. Small groups exist here at Grace. If you're looking to go deeper, you can do that. But Jesus has to be the centerpiece. If you struggle with how to get connected into a small group, incredible ministry here, disciple. It will take you into God's word. It's a commitment. But you will be well-versed in this. And you will pray. You'll grow in your prayer life. And you'll be a part of a small group of people. It will model it for you for a year. And you will come out from in this sense of training, knowing how to take it to the next level. Curcio is a word you've heard. This is a weekend experience, an intensified experience for you to get away, to literally get away from all the distractions and have some intensive time walking with Jesus, training with Jesus. You will come out of that with tools. You will come out of that with a small group. You will come out of that with the means to, again, engage in this process of following Jesus. And the other thing that's been happening in this last year that some of you know about and some of you don't, which is sort of taking it to the ultimate level, is I've been gathering for this last year with two groups of people every week at my house. And what it has been about, it has been about, and this has been new for me, because you know what? It's so easy to just have programs within the church. And what it's been, and that's why it's been at my house, is inviting people into my life, into all of the details of my life, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the stuff that's all over the place. 
and inviting them to see how Jesus is at work in my life, how Jesus is teaching me, how Jesus is leading me. And I don't ask them to copy everything, but I ask them to copy and learn from where they see Jesus at work in my life. And we gather together with this understanding of this is what discipleship looks like. I'm, I share my life. It's life on life. And I'm sharing and investing in these people with the understanding that in what I'm doing, they are going to go and do the same thing and open it up to others. But it's not this big program we can do in 10 weeks. It's this gradual thing that's growing. And it's a huge commitment because it's a huge commitment because it's every week. And let me tell you how hard that was to do with our busy schedule. Every week for an hour and a half. And it's an hour and a half. And, it's, and, and here's where it's even more of a challenge, is it's more of a challenge because really having to be real for people to actually come into my house and see how I live. To hear the conversations I have with my kids, the things that we prioritize. Here's the even greater challenge, is you think the commitment once a week is tough? That's just the, the touchstone. It's actually in the space in between of inviting them along in what's going on in my life. We get lunch together, we go shopping together, where they can call at any time. Complete access, because I'm following Jesus and I want to help them to follow Jesus. And more and more of those opportunities are gonna come, and I wanna say this to you right now, some of you may go, whoa, 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 whoa. I got no time for that. Okay, you're not ready yet. But for those of you who are, for those of you who are hungry, for those of you who really want to engage the means, this is where we're getting real about following Jesus. If you were to ask the average Christian about grace, I imagine he or she would declare, I know I would, Tell me about grace. I would say, I am saved by grace. I am saved by grace. I thank God for his grace. But as we've looked at, when we look closer, the average Christian's day-to-day -day life, when we look closely, looks and feels no different than a non-Christian's life. And what that would suggest is that despite what we say, God's grace is not enough. For many Christians, grace may get them started but then all of a sudden they believe it's up to them to finish. Having begun with the Spirit, now they, they try to attain their goal of maturity. They try to, to achieve their transformation in Christ by believing in Jesus. And some of us get very, very passionate. We'll raise our hands. We'll cry, I believe, I believe, I believe. And what we're really doing is we're trying to say, I want to believe, I want to believe, I want to believe. And the results speak for themselves. They look nothing but the kind of life that Jesus describes here in Matthew's gospel. And in the same way, in a bigger sense, together as Christians, our tendency for sharing Jesus, for revealing God's grace, for declaring salvation from the cross and the resurrection, our way of doing this for years has been to build a church. We gather together, we pick a location, and then we create appealing programs that meet the needs and complete, compete with the rival hobbies and clubs that are out there. And then we throw up a cross and we try to woo people into our community. We make the church the cause and believe that if we make the church the cause, the effect will be discipleship. That once people are a part of the church, they'll start following Jesus. If you look around Huntington Beach, you drive around much? How many churches are there in Huntington Beach? How many? Lots. And every day I hear about another church plan in Huntington Beach, or in Fountain Valley, or in Orange County. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but let me ask you something. Do you think there are as many disciples in Huntington Beach as there are churches? 
Do you see it? And let me ask you something. Did Jesus tell us to build churches or did Jesus tell us to make disciples? Does Jesus say, when I came back, I'm going to come and I'm going to go, Huntington Beach, you're impressive, 50 churches. Woo! Or did Jesus come and say, I am going to know you because you know me, because you've been following me? Beloved, here at Grace, and it is radical. It may not seem like it. It is for me. Some of us, maybe not. Our trajectory has and will continue to be different. We are not worried about building this church. That is not what I'm focused on. We are focused, and we will be focused on building and making disciples. We are no longer fixated on fragmenting our life as the body of Christ into competing ministries. And I know for some of you, you're so hardwired. Where's this ministry? Where's that ministry? We've got to have this. We're not going to do that anymore. Evangelism over here, missions over there, worship in that corner, Bible study over, over there. Is it some religious bazaar? We are committed to discipleship first. Trusting that if we make discipleship the cause, that if we get real, sharing our lives with each other, holding each other accountable, holding up the vision, calling out our intent, engaging the means of letting Jesus shape our lives, if we make that the cause, then the effect will be the church. If we make discipleship the cause, I believe evangelism will happen. If we make discipleship the cause, I'm not worried about missions. If we make evangelism the cause, worship will not be something that's optional. It'll be a default. Beloved, through sharing and celebrating the vision of following Jesus, of discipleship, of getting involved in that vision on Sunday, by starting to get to know Jesus through our commitment and accountability to each other, we look to train together, to walk together in the word, in prayer and in service, trusting and learning through these practices how to live eternally with Jesus now. To close, I'll just say it like this. Discipleship is not working hard to stay saved. Discipleship is not working hard to stay saved. Discipleship is following Jesus together to work out what it means to be saved. If that's where you want to go, I invite you to join me. Amen? Amen. Amen.